before we begin our study, I want to show you another video of a young man whose life was transformed by the power of the gospel. And then he had to suffer persecution for what he believed in a very difficult part of the world, but he was ultimately faithful through it all, and God used him in a powerful way. I hope you enjoy this story. Come with me to the continent of Africa, where one of our faithful radio producers has sacrificed so much to reach his fellow countrymen for Jesus. Hi, I'm Cammie, and this is AWR 360. It was late one afternoon as I closed the door to my office at the AWR station. I would be gone for several days. As Assad boarded the bus, nothing seemed unusual. It was like any other day, only today he was traveling farther this time returning home for a short visit. Despite religious persecution in his country of birth, Assad longed for his people to know Jesus, and this spurred him on. All of a sudden, Assad's thoughts were interrupted. as they reached for me too and then to my horror yelled this is the man we are looking for they said they knew of my work with the radio and wanted my contacts unsatisfied with the answers I gave they threw me into a large empty container Shut out from fresh air and sunshine, he sat in darkness. His socks, shoes, and jacket were taken, and Assad suffered from the extreme conditions. As the sun beat down in the day, the metal container intensified the heat, while at night, a sharp chill set in. Without food or water, Assad soon fell very sick. As I sat in the dark isolation of the container, my mind went back to my childhood. Scenes of my village being raided by night flashed before me. Those men had worn masks too. Somehow I escaped though, and I ran with all my might. Alone in the darkness, I wondered for the first time, what would become of me? Assad's mind lingers on the memories. There was the orphanage he was taken to, and the boys that introduced him to Adventist World Radio. They huddled together listening, knowing that if caught, punishment would ensue. Christianity was not allowed here, but this only made them long all the more for the truth. Then there was that day when the orphanage director had called him into her office. Assad was old enough now, and he must leave the orphanage. His heart ached as he walked away never to return. Again, he wondered, what will become of me? Now he sat alone in a metal shipping container, pondering the same question he had as a lonely child and dejected orphan. Assad closed his eyes and thought about his work with Adventist World Radio, 
since escaping his home country, Assad had been producing Avenus radio programs in his native tongue for his people back home. Christianity was forbidden in his country, but the radio could carry the message that missionaries could not. I wondered what would become of my radio program now. Who would carry on the work if I didn't return? The days and weeks passed. Assad was released from the container, but the inhumane conditions remained. Starved, beaten, and even electrocuted, he had endured more than any human should. One day, without notice, my hands were unbound and I was told I could return home. I could hardly believe it. I was free. I was praising the Lord as I boarded a bus again. This time, headed home to my family and my work at the radio station. Despite the harrowing experience Assad has been through, he faithfully continues his work with AWR, producing messages of hope and truth for his home country. Assad trusts the Lord to keep him safe and knows that as long as God wants him to be producing these programs, nothing can stop him. There are many others like Assad who have suffered great persecution to share their faith. And yet there are many more who still need to hear about Jesus. Please pray for these precious souls and consider helping to further the work of Adventist World Radio around the world by donating today. Together, from broadcast to baptism, this is AWR 360. Wasn't that a powerful story of faithfulness? Wanted to share that testimony with you guys just to encourage you at how God is moving uh, around the world and people who are faithful to Him. And you know, that young man suffered a lot of persecution for what he believed. But God is now still using him to share His truth with others in that very difficult part of the world. So I would encourage you guys to pray for the work of AWR and pray that we would continue to be able to broadcast the gospel through faithful producers like, like uh, the young man we just heard about in the video. And I, I, I ask you to just pray for them and pray that God would protect them and bless them as they continue to do His work. Well, friends, tonight we've got an exciting topic, and I'm glad you're here because it's actually so exciting that we had to divide it into two. Tonight is part one, tomorrow is part two, and so we're going to get into it now. But before we do, I just want to give you a quick overview. So tonight we're going to be looking at one of the most amazing prophecies in the Bible. We're going to dig deep into this, the longest time prophecy in the Bible, in the book of Daniel. And I think by the time we're finished, you're going to be amazed at how relevant this is to our day today. And then, of course, tomorrow, as I said, is part two. And part two will continue the study. And we're going to see how both of the chapters that we're looking at in the book of Daniel, chapters 8 and 9, are closely related. And you're going to be blessed as we go through that tomorrow as well. So tomorrow, we're going to be back in person. And I'm encouraged uh, to be able to welcome you back tomorrow night as we study part two. Then on Thursday night, a very important topic, the coming of the lawless one. The coming of the lawless one. We're going to go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and look at the mystery of iniquity in the last days. And that will help us as we look at the rest of the Bible. And we're going to get the background that we need to understand one of the most important themes in the book of Revelation. So on Thursday night, you won't want to miss it, the coming of the lawless one. And then on Friday night, we're going to look at Revelation's sign of God. Before Jesus comes, most of the planet will find out about a special sign that God has given to the people who follow Him. And those people have a special last day message found in Revelation chapter 14. You're not going to be one anywhere else on Friday night except right here in the West Houston Church, or right where you are in front of your phone or your computer watching Revelation Sign of God. Amen? So 
join us for that special message. But tonight, the time of the end, part one, can't wait to dig into this study, but as always, before we get into the, into the Word of God, what do we need to do, guys? We need to pray. So let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, tonight, thank you for bringing us together. Lord, online tonight, some of us are watching from our homes, maybe some in our cars, on our phones. Lord, I pray that you would be with each one that is watching tonight, wherever they are. Bless them and help us as we get into your word to understand these prophecies so that we can know just how close we are to the soon coming of Christ. I pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts and enlighten our understanding. And most importantly, Holy Spirit, come into our lives and come into my life, dear Jesus, and may he be lifted up in this message tonight, I pray in his name. Amen. Amen. All right. Before we get into the heart of our subject, we're going to do a little bit of review. Amen. I know that's good because we all need review from time to time. I used to love it when my teachers would do reviews right before tests. Now, I'm not going to test you tonight, so don't worry. Don't, your heart doesn't need to start pounding, but we're going to do a quick review. How many of you remember our first subject on Friday night? Daniel chapter 2. Remember, we talked about the dream that God gave Nebuchadnezzar, and it was the dream of the statue, right? And what was that first metal of the head on the statue? It was, you can say it wherever you are, gold, right? It was gold, and it represented what? Babylon. You got it. All right. The chest and arms were made of? <laughs> My guys up in the AV, they're getting this. Amen. And it represented? The Medes and the Persians. All right, I heard all of you out there on your couches saying that. That's good. All right, so that is uh, the second one. How about the belly and thighs of bronze? They were representing the Greeks, right? Alexander the Great, the guy who was conquering the world by the time he was 32. That's six, six years younger than me. I can't believe it. All right, the legs of irons. The legs of iron represented the Romans, remember? Or as Edward Gibbon put it, the iron monarchy of Rome. And then what about those feet? Those feet of mixed iron and clay represented mixed, uh, the divided Western Roman Empire. Okay, good. You guys get an A. I know you all got that right as we were reviewing. Now, tonight's prophecy is going to interestingly cover the same ground, but from a different perspective. So this is one of those nights where we're definitely going to build on material we've already covered. But it's good. Remember how we talked about God as a master teacher. And in the Bible, we often see this happening where God will, in prophecy, he'll show something and then he'll show it again, expand and repeat, and it emphasizes what he's trying to teach. And so that's one of the ways that we can understand Bible prophecy and how it becomes so clear. The vision of the statue of Daniel chapter 2 was a dream that God gave Nebuchadnezzar. But tonight we're going to look at Daniel chapter 8 and we're going to see a vision that God gave to Daniel himself. Let's begin with Daniel 8 and verse 1. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared unto me, even unto me, Daniel, after that which appeared unto me at the first. So in Daniel chapter 8, Belshazzar is now on the throne. And that means that many years have now passed since the events of Daniel chapter 2. Daniel is now an old man, and it also means that the Babylonian Empire is getting close to the finish line. It's getting close to that transition that had been prophesied. And in very short order, it's going to be replaced by the Persians, which is what God told Nebuchadnezzar back in chapter 2. So let's continue here to verse 3 and 4. Then I lifted up my eyes and saw, and behold, there stood before the river a ram which had two horns. So what was standing before the river, everyone? A ram. I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for my guys to say it. I know you guys are saying at home. All right, very good. Continuing on. And the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher came up last. All right, so let's analyze this. How many horns does it have, everyone? It has two. All right. And those horns are the same size? No, they're not. All right, now they're responding. No, the Bible says one is bigger than the other. 
So let's continue. I saw the ram pushing westward and northward and southward and so that no beast might stand before him, neither was there any that could deliver out of his hand. But he did according to his will and became great. Okay, let's pause for just a minute and think about this. How much do we know so far about this ram? Well, number one, it's a ram who has how many horns? He has two horns, right? And the horns are not the same size. So they're uneven. One is bigger than the other. And this ram with uneven horns pushes to the west and to the north and to the south. And of course, the big question, what does this represent? Someone says, well, this looks really strange. Why does the Bible talk about a ram with two horns and one's bigger than the other? That's really weird. It's like something out of the National Enquirer. Well, where do we find the answer? Well, (laughs) I guarantee you, friends, we don't need to go to the National Enquirer. That's not the place to go, okay? Remember this principle. When we're interpreting Bible prophecy, we let the Bible explain itself. Line upon line, precept upon precept. The Bible will tell us. And so in this case, our job is going to be really, really easy because the angel Gabriel actually comes and explains to Daniel exactly what the lamb represents. Check this out. Daniel chapter 8 and verse 20. The ram which you saw having the two horns, they are the kings of who? Media and Persia. There you go. He says it right here. It doesn't get any easier than this. Back when we were studying Daniel chapter 2, we had to compare history, right, with the prophecy to see it. But now, Gabriel just tells him flat out, there is no mistake, this ram is the kingdom, the empire of Medo-Persia. All right. So, this time the vision doesn't start with Babylon, because Babylon is just about finished. Daniel is right at the end of the kingdom. And so it starts with the Medes and the Persians. A coalition government made up of two nations. So the ram has two horns representing these two nations that make up this coalition government. Now, this is an important principle, you guys, I want you to see from Bible prophecy. Often in Bible prophecy, animals represent political powers or kingdoms. In this case, the Medo-Persian Empire, represented with two uh, two horns, is represented... um, by this animal, okay? So this ram. And so as we keep moving further down through Daniel and Revelation, you're going to see other symbols again, animals representing kingdoms. Now it's interesting because if you think about it, we still do that sometimes today. What is an animal that represents the United States of America? Anybody want to guess? What's on our seal? The, The bald eagle, that's exactly right. How about the nation of Russia? Do they have an animal that is often associated with them? The bear, that's right, (laughs) my guys are smart. Um, So oftentimes, how about the nation of the United Kingdom? The lion, right? The lion is on many of their seals. I'm sure uh, my friend Ashwin is up there smiling because he's from the UK. Did I get that right? Amen, Amen. he said amen. All right, so animals represent kingdoms even today. So we're familiar with that. But a lot of times we don't think about that when we're looking at Bible prophecy, but it is true, friends. All right, so... This ram has uneven horns, matches history perfectly. The Medes and the Persians were a coalition government, but they weren't equal partners, friends. The Medes were first, and later the Persians joined them, but the Persians were actually stronger, and they overshadowed the Medes, so that's why it shows one horn being stronger or bigger than the other. Then the Bible tells us that this kingdom or this empire pushes in three directions. It pushes to the west, to the north, and to the south. And friends, that's exactly how the Persians conquered the world. They started in what is modern-day Iran, and they pushed their way into three directions to take over the whole Babylonian empire. The prophecy is amazingly accurate. Years before it happened, Daniel saw everything. But that's not everything he saw. Check out Daniel chapter 8, verses 5 and 7. And, I, and as I was considering... Suddenly, a male goat came from the west. From where, everyone? From the west. Across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. Wow, this is an amazing scene. This 
This male goat comes fast, not even touching the ground, indicating that he's moving very fast from the west. And the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. Then he came to the ram which had two horns, which I had seen standing beside the river, and ran at him with furious power. And I saw him confronting the ram. He was moved with rage against him, attacked the ram, and broke his two horns. So this goat comes furiously fast out of the west, attacks the ram, and boom, attacks him. There was no power in the ram to withstand him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled him, and there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. So this is an amazing scene. As Daniel is watching this titanic struggle between these two animals, one with a big horn suddenly comes from the west and smashes into the ram. So friends, who is this goat coming from the west? Now if you were to guess, remembering what we studied from Daniel chapter 2, who do you think the goat represents? Well, if any of you are saying it's Greece, A+. plus. You're right. It is exactly Greece. The belly and thighs of bronze that we saw in Daniel chapter 2 that represented who? The kingdom of Greece and Alexander the Great who conquered the Persians at the Battle of Arbella at 331 B.C., they formed the next Mediterranean Empire. And again, we really don't even have to guess because the Bible tells us. Look here in verses 21 and 22. The male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn that is between its eyes is the first king. You see how easy it is? The Bible is crystal clear who this male goat is, and of course, who was the king of Greece? It was Alexander the Great. It's incredible. Now the goat moves so fast that his feet don't even touch the ground. He's like a flying goat. Have any of you seen a goat fly? (laughs) This is a flying goat. Matches Alexander the Great exactly, because remember, in just four years flat, he conquered two million square miles, 200 million people, rather, excuse me, 2 million square miles with 20 million people in those territories all by the time he was 32 years old. Makes me feel pretty slow, to be honest. Well, that much is all pretty much review. But then the prophecy adds some detail that we didn't see in Daniel chapter 2. Let's continue. Daniel chapter 8 and verse 8. Therefore the male goat grew very great, but when he became strong... The large horn was what? It was broken. And in place of it, four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven. So what happens here? The great horn breaks off, and it's replaced by four more horns. So what do these four horns now represent? Well, again, we don't have to speculate because Gabriel answers that as well. Daniel 8, verses 21 and 22. As for the broken horn and the four that stood up in its place, four kingdoms shall arise out of that nation, but not with its power. Now this is really, really interesting. This is really interesting, guys. Alexander led his armies. You remember, we talked about this. All the way to India. And and, and it is said that when he got to the shore, he almost cried because there was no more territory to conquer. He was so sad that he couldn't conquer any more people. And he runs out of the world. And so then his men are kind of fed up because they've been on the road for years and they miss their families. And so what does he do? He turns around. He starts to head home. But you remember the story. He never makes it. Because in Babylon, just outside the ancient city where Nebuchadnezzar had that dream, Alexander the Great dies one night. We think he drunk himself to death. Very, very sad thing. So... He's dead, and now the Greeks need a king. But, of course, like often happens, there's a power struggle. There's no clear successor. And so in his place, there are four generals that take up power. And so what happens is you've got Cassander to the west, Lysimachus to the north. I I probably just slaughtered that word. Seleucus to the east, and Ptolemy, who rules the north of Africa. So one horn, Alexander the Great, becomes four horns, or four rulers, right? Those four generals that that fought for the kingdom after he died. All right, let's continue. Daniel 8, verses 9 and through 12. And out of one of them, 
came a little horn. Now, when it says out of one of them, it's referring back to the four winds in the previous verse. So just to clarify, when it says out of one of them, it's referring to the four winds. Out of one of them, that is the winds, came a little horn which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and out of... uh, Okay, wait. Before I say that, let me... Before I continue, I need to point this out, friends. Remember, we had one notable horn, okay? And then we had four horns. And now we have a little horn, okay? It comes from one of the four winds of heaven. So now, tell me, based on what we've already studied, what kingdom replaced the Greeks according to our prophecy? Does anybody remember? All my guys are getting it right. A plus to all of you. You guys all get ice cream later. Amen. Okay. It was the Romans. They, it grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east. And I want you to see this as we keep reading, friends. Toward the glorious land. Very, very interesting. Toward the glorious land. Now tell me, what place do you think Daniel would consider to be the glorious land? Where was his home, friends, that he had been taken from when he was a kid? It was Israel, right? It was the beautiful land, the nation of Israel, the promised land. So this is talking about Israel. Now let me, tell you, let me ask you a question. Did Rome ever occupy Israel? Yes or no? Yes, it did, exactly. The entire ministry of Jesus happens under Roman occupation in the Roman province of Palestine. So continuing in the verse, so toward the glorious land, and it grew up to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. Now, this is very interesting stuff. We don't have enough time tonight to go through all of this. Just as a little preview or as a, 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 an enticer, we have a sermon coming up in a few nights that will deal with this more in depth. So I want you to keep watching because we're going to come back to this. But for tonight, we're going to skim over the surface and just read the whole prophecy. Deal? Okay, so we're going to get the big picture because we're headed to a specific point. Now we're going to continue here. Daniel chapter 8, and here we continue, verses 9 through 12. We're continuing. He even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifices were taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Okay, question. Who is the prince of the host? Who is the prince of the host? It's Jesus. In Revelation 19, Jesus leads the armies of heaven riding a white horse. In Joshua chapter 5, it's Jesus that appears to Joshua and describes himself as the commander of who? Of the Lord's host, right? Isaiah calls him the prince of peace. In Daniel chapter 9, Jesus is called Messiah the Prince. Jesus is the Prince of the Host. And did Rome ever attack Jesus? You know the answer. Absolutely they did. Jesus died on a Roman cross. So, did Rome ever put a stop to the sacrifices in Jerusalem? Yes, again they did. Remember, Rome destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple in 70 A.D., now, that's not the whole picture, not even, by, not even by a long shot. But there are details, and there's details we're going to lo- want to look at again as we study this more. But there's no question here that what the Bible is describing is a conflict between Jesus and Rome. The Bible continues. Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices, and he cast truth down to the ground. He did all this and prospered. Now again, this is a description of the iron monarchy of Rome. And again, there are details that we are going to come back. But it's incredible what we see happening here. Listen to what the Bible continues to say here. We're in Daniel chapter 8, verses 23 and 25, describing this king. A king shall arise having fierce features who understands sinister schemes. He shall even rise against the prince of princes. Now, I don't know about you, but are you getting the sense as you read this that something really bad is coming out of this? It's possible that this is pointing us to the Antichrist. 
Is this a hint that the Antichrist will show up in the region where the Roman Empire was? We're going to be studying this in a future night. And we're going to study for sure about how in the sequence of these empires, we see that Rome is the empire out of which the Antichrist comes. You're going to definitely want to be with us on that night when we study that, friends. But you've got to wonder something here. Somebody I know is asking, well, Pastor Kyle, you know, Gabriel told Daniel that the um, ram was, was um, <laughs> that the ram was Medo-Persia, that the goat was Greece. Why didn't Gabriel tell Daniel that this one was Rome? Well, we don't know 100% for sure, but I think I have a pretty good possible reason. Think about it for a minute. Who was in power when the early Christian church got started? It was Rome, right? Who persecuted the early Christian church? We talked about that a couple nights ago. Remember, it was Rome. So maybe, and here's just an idea, maybe it doesn't name Rome by name in order to protect the Bible as the first century church is taking it to the Roman Empire. If the Bible had actually said the word Rome, life might have been even harder for those early Christians who were already considered a threat to the security of the empire. I think that's a pretty good possibility as to why God chose to not specifically say Rome in these verses. So let's review really quick what we've learned so far. This prophecy from Daniel 8 covers the same time period that we see in Daniel chapter 2 with different details. It doesn't mention Babylon, again, because Babylon is almost finished. But then in Daniel 2, we had the chest and arms of silver, which represented the Medes and the Persians. And in Daniel 8, we have the ram with uneven horns. Good job, you guys. I know you're with me. In Daniel 2, we had the belly and thighs of, of bronze. Amen. They were the Greeks, that's right, under Alexander the Great. And then in Daniel 8, the Greeks were represented by a goat with one big horn, who flies across, doesn't even touch the ground, and the horn breaks off, and it's replaced by four horns, or the four generals that seized power after Alexander the Great. And then in Daniel 2, we saw the legs, the iron legs, which represented Rome. And then out of that continues to the feet, which is the mixture of iron and clay. That represents Western the divided Western Roman Empire. But in Daniel 8, it goes a little bit differently. In Daniel 8, all of Rome is covered by the little horn. Okay, Both the pagan Roman Empire and the divided Western Empire. You follow me? It covers this whole period of history from the legs to the toes. Okay, So again, we're looking at parallels here. Daniel 8 and Daniel 2. So this, this horn here in Daniel 8 represents that entire period of history. Now, we're going to review this again, but again, it's very interesting as you look at these parallels. For right now, here's what I want you to see. In Daniel 2, the next thing after the feet was what? What happened, everyone? The rock. Exactly, you got it right. It was the stone that came out of the sky, and the stone represented what? The second coming of Jesus. Amen. But in this prophecy, we don't see the stone but we see something else very, very interesting. Something else comes next, and this bite me, this so far might be the most incredible part of this prophecy. Are you guys ready? I hope you're ready. Because if, even if you're not ready, I'm still going to go there. Amen? All right, here we go. Listen to this. So far we have a ram, a goat, and a little horn. And then we get one more thing. Check this out. Daniel chapter 8 and verse 14. And he said to me, for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Now that's a little bit different, isn't it? There's no animal. There's no horn. What do we do? There's no animal. There's no horn. Which means we're not talking about a kingdom or a military power. This is 2,300 days. Literally, in the, in the original language, it literally means 2,300 evenings and mornings. And that's because back in those days, they measured time differently than we do. So you and I measure time from how? From midnight to midnight. That's the Roman system. But in the Bible, they measured time from sunset to 
sunset. So actually, it's sunset on Tuesday. It's already Wednesday in Bible time. It measured time from sunset to sunset. So the evening and the morning were the day. That's why when you read the creation account in the book of Genesis, it says evening and morning were the first day. And evening and morning were the second day. The day ended when? At sunset. All right? So what does this mean? Why do we suddenly have 2,300 days or 2,300 evenings and mornings? Well, as with other parts of the vision, Gabriel comes back and gives us more detail. Let's see what he has to say. Daniel chapter 8 and verse 26. And the vision of the evenings and mornings which was told is true. Therefore, seal up the vision for it refers to many days in the future. And that's it. There's nothing more. Gabriel says, Daniel, the prophecy is true, but I want you to seal it up because it's for many days in the future. That's it. No name, no horns, no beast, no nothing. And there is absolutely nothing in the way of explanation. So maybe it's not important. Maybe we don't need to understand this part. Interesting. Look at what Daniel, look at what he does. Verse 27. And I, Daniel, what does it say, friends? He fainted. And I was sick for certain days. And afterward, I rose up and did the king's business. And I was astonished at the vision. But none understood it. Now let me ask you a question. What part of the vision did Daniel not understand? Did he understand the ram? Yes, right? Because Gabriel explained it. Did he understand the goat? Yes. Did he understand the little horn? Yes. He, Gabriel had given lots of details. There's only one part that he doesn't understand, and that's the 2,300 days. So maybe you might say, well, okay, Kyle, maybe it's not important then. I mean, maybe it's just there because the angels convinced God to put something in there to confuse us. Uh, no, 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 no. That's not true. Nothing in the Bible is there to confuse us, friends. Everything is there for a reason. The prophecy is important. And before we're finished, you're going to see that God doesn't actually leave us hanging. Daniel does get an answer, and you're going to get an answer too, but I'm going to make you work for it. Now, I know we got a big study tonight, so keep buckling those seatbelts. What we're going to do is use the principles we've learned. We're going to search through the Bible, line upon line, to see what we can learn. And the Bible gives us a number of very important clues. In fact, Gabriel does give us a few more details that we need to pay attention to very quickly. Here's the number one clue from Daniel 8.17. Understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. Now that's exactly where our subject tonight is called the time of the end. It's from this verse. The 2300 days has something to do with the end of time. Clue number two comes from Daniel 8.19, where Gabriel says, For at the time appointed, what friends? The end shall be. So we know that the 2300 days points us, to the end of points us to the end of time, and it's also talking about a time that has been appointed. Now this is remarkable, and remember, there's, it's remarkable because there's a time here that's already been appointed. It's already on the prophetic schedule. If you go to the New Testament, a book that didn't exist in the time of Daniel, you'll find something really interesting that Paul says about last day events. Here it is in Acts chapter 17 and verse 31. Paul says, He has appointed a day on which He will what? Judge the world in righteousness by the man whom He has ordained. Now did you catch that? There is something that God has already appointed. What is it, friends? It's judgment day. So let me ask you, does the 2300-day prophecy have something to do with the judgment? Maybe so, maybe so. Clue number three comes from the prophecy itself. Let's read through the verse. All right. And he said to me, listen, look at this closely, guys, for 2,300 days, then what? The sanctuary shall be cleansed. Now this is a very, very important clue. What does it mean to cleanse the sanctuary. Does it mean that we wash the sanctuary here at West Houston Church? <laughs> I hope that, I know you guys clean a lot here, so that's great. Amen. Praise the Lord. I want you to pay attention carefully, friends. It actually does have to do with cleansing this, the sanctuary, but you'll see what I mean. What we're going to do, we are going to look at one of the most important 
keys for understanding the book of Revelation. This is something you do not want to miss, friends, okay? We're going to look at the ancient sanctuary of Israel. Now, this is an important concept I want you to pay very careful attention to. You'll remember that the Israelites, when they were traveling through the wilderness, they had a portable tabernacle, and they carried, them, they carried it with them wherever they went. It was the center of worship and the center of their whole lives. Whenever they stopped moving and they pitched camp, they would set up the tabernacle and they would pitch all their tents around it. And in later years, of course, when they established the nation of Israel, the tent was replaced by the temple in Jerusalem. Now, this is a very special building because it was not designed by a human being. The design was from God himself. They weren't allowed to just build anything they wanted. They had to follow a blueprint that God had given to Moses. Look at what the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 5. For he said, that is, God said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. They weren't allowed to design the sanctuary themselves. Moses had to follow an exact plan that God showed him on the mountain. Why? Why is that? It's because the sanctuary was not just a building. The sanctuary was actually a prophecy itself. A prophecy from God. Let's go on a quick tour of the sanctuary, friends. Just a very quick tour. And see how everything in the sanctuary pointed forward to our Savior, Jesus Christ. First, as you came into the outer courtyard, you noticed the altar of burnt offering. And that's where the Israelites would come and they would offer their sacrifices. One of the most common was, a, of course, a lamb. And that's where the sacrifice was offered and then burned on that altar of burnt offering. Who did the lamb point forward to, friends? It pointed forward to Jesus, the lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. As you moved past the altar of sacrifice, the burnt, off, a burnt offering, then you came to an article of furniture called the laver. And it was a wash basin. And there the priest would cleanse themselves before they went inside the holy place. Now that pointed forward to the cleansing that Jesus offers us so that you and I can step into the presence of God even though we are sinners. All right, that's what, remember we referenced the verse, we've referenced it several times, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to what? To cleanse us from all, forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So that labor represented the cleansing power of Jesus. Now we go into, we go into that beautiful curtain and into the holy place. All right? And even in here we see furniture that also represents Jesus. Now the sanctuary was actually divided into two rooms, the holy place and the most holy place, all right? And in the holy place, you had three articles of furniture. First, on the left, you had the seven-branch candlestick, which, of course, it was the only source of light in that room. And that candlestick represented Jesus, who is the light of the world, filled with the olive oil, which represents the Holy Spirit. All right, and then on the right-hand side, you had the table of showbread, all right, the 12 loaves of bread, one loaf for each of the tribes of Israel. And this also pointed to Jesus who said, I am the bread of life. And of course, you had the priest himself who would go into the sanctuary and the priest represented Jesus because Jesus was, is our priest and he also is our sacrifice. So the Bible said, that Jesus, the Bible says that Jesus is also our high priest, and so the priest represented the work of Christ as well. And then, as you continue up against the curtain, you see the altar of incense, which represents that sweet-smelling smoke that would go up, represented the prayers of God's people. Revelation 8 talks about how that smoke represents the prayers of God's people. And then, finally, friends, as you go into that cross that beautiful curtain into the most holy place, there you see, there you see in the most holy place, the most sacred part of the entire nation of Israel, the entire camp, wherever the Israelites pitched camp, the Bible says that the presence of God would come down into this room and would take up residence above the Ark of the Covenant, right? In between or right under the wings of those two covering cherubs. The whole thing, the Shekinah glory, the whole thing was a prophecy of Jesus. Moses could never have gotten that on his own. And so if you study 
the Bible carefully, you'll discover something really, really remarkable. The earthly sanctuary was actually a copy of the sanctuary in heaven. When the Bible talks about the priests working in the temple, it says that they serve, this is Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 5, they serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things. In other words, the earthly sanctuary was a shadow of what's already in heaven. Isn't that cool? So if you understand that, if you understand that the sanctuary on earth is a copy of what's in heaven, a lot of things you read in the book of Revelation are going to certainly suddenly make sense. Here's an example. Revelation chapter 11 and verse 19. The Bible says, Then the temple of God was opened, where? In heaven. And the ark of the covenant, ark of his covenant, was seen in his temple. So again, we see sanctuary language here describing the scene in heaven. The sanctuary points us to who? To Jesus. Amen. You guys all got it. That's right. And more specifically, it points us to what Jesus does for us where? On the cross and in heaven as our high priest. Amen. You see? Christ is our sacrifice and he is our high priest. Hebrews chapter 8 says this. Hebrews 8 verses 1 and 2. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty where? In the heavens. So who is our great high priest in the heavenly sanctuary? It is Jesus, right? And here's what it says in the next verse. A minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle. Which tabernacle, everyone? The true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. Powerful. Moses built the sanctuary on earth based on blueprints that God showed him. It was a copy of the real thing in heaven. So everything that happened on earth actually mirrored something that happened where? In heaven. Now follow me carefully. This is about to get very amazing, so continue to buckle those seatbelts. There were seven feasts held every year in the sanctuary. How many? Seven. All right. And remember, seven represents completion or perfection. So when you get a set of seven in Bible prophecy, we've studied this before, it represents completion. All seven feasts pointed forward to the ministry of who? You got it, to the ministry of Christ. Amazing. Look at this. First feast, early in the year, you had Passover, celebrating Israel's escape from Egyptian slavery. And if you remember the story, the Israelites had to take a perfect lamb and put the blood over the doorpost of their house so the angel of death would what? Pass over their home. It was predicting the death of Christ, the Lamb of God who gave his life so you and I could escape the wages of sin, which is death. 1 Corinthians 6, uh, rather 5, verse 7, says that Jesus, our Passover, is sacrificed. Number two, you had the feast of, are you with me? Unleavened bread, which was really part of the Passover. But on the second day, all of the Israelites had to remove every trace of leaven or yeast out of their houses. Why? Because leaven represented sin. Leaven represented sin. And Paul reminds us in um, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 6, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. In other words, a little bit of yeast can quickly spread through a whole lump of dough. So leaven is considered like sin. So this pointed forward to the fact that Jesus would not only die, but he would remove sin from our hearts. Amen. So then the third feast was the Feast of Firstfruits, which happened on the third day after the Passover lamb was slain. The Israelites would go out into the field and they would look for the part of the grain that was in the spring harvest that was first ripening, and they would pick it and they would wave it before the Lord, the wave sheaf. It was an act of faith. They were saying, we believe that the rest of the harvest is going to ripen thanks to you, O God. And what happened on the third day, my friends, after the Lamb of God was slain? What happened on the third day? He rose from the dead. So Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 20 that Jesus is the first fruits of them that slept. Amen. And because Jesus rose from the dead, you and I can have faith and know that the rest of the harvest is going to rise from the dead when Jesus comes. Amen. Praise God. What a powerful illustration. The feast of first fruits. And then we had the feast of Pentecost, or the feast of weeks, as they called it, which celebrated Israel's arrival at Mount Sinai 
50 days after leaving Egypt. And what happened on that day? Fire fell on top of the mountain, remember? And the people heard the voice of God speaking the Ten Commandments. It was a powerful moment as God established His covenant with His people. And, you know, it's interesting because there's a Jewish legend that says that when God spoke the Ten Commandments that day, He did it in all the languages of the world, all at the same time. Now, that's just a legend, and you won't find that in the Bible, but here's something interesting. On the day of Pentecost in the New Testament... The Jews would have known that story. So imagine the impact when fire suddenly falls on the head of the disciples and they start to preach the gospel in the language of everybody present. All at the same time. Friends, the Feast of Pentecost actually predicted the beginning of the Christian church. Powerful stuff. Then came the summer, so you had a long break before the next feast. But in the fall, you had the Feast of Trumpets, which was a very solemn occasion. They would blow trumpets in the camp of Israel to warn them that they had only ten days to get things right with God. Why? Because in ten days, they would have the Day of Atonement, which was the most solemn feast of the whole year. It was known as the Day of Judgment. You had to make everything right. You had to repent of your sins. Nothing could be left unrepented because if you did, you would be kicked out of the camp of Israel forever. It was the day of judgment. And then came the last feast of the year, the Feast of Tabernacles. Now some people call this the Feast of Booths. Why? Because once a year, the Israelites would leave their home and they would live in these makeshift, makeshift temporary shelters to celebrate the fact that God had kept His Word He had led his people through the wilderness and he had brought them to the promised land. Now what's really interesting is that the language of Revelation 21 verse 3, and again, this happens after the second coming, it says that when Jesus returns, after Jesus returns, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them. That's a celebration of the, Lord, of the second coming. This last feast pointed forward to the day when God would take up residence with the human race and you and I would finally be forever in the heavenly promised land. Now look at this very carefully. You've got, a, you've got the death of Christ in the Passover and you've also got the resurrection of Christ on the third day during the Feast of First Fruits. You've got the day of Pentecost or the beginning of the Christian church. And then you have a long break. Just like in history, you had the Dark Ages fall across the planet not, not long after the church got started. In the fall, you had a final warning followed by the judgment and then the second coming of Jesus Christ. It's the whole ministry of Christ predicted in an ancient structure that existed 1,500 years before he was even born. It's absolute, isn't it amazing, friends? That's an amazing prophecy. Amazing prophecies. Amen. I know you're saying amen. That's, that's what it is. So what does this have to do with Daniel chapter 8? Well, it has everything to do with Daniel chapter 8. I know this is a big one. Stay with me. We're getting close. Daniel 8 is referring us to the Day of Atonement, friends or Yom Kippur, as the Jews call it. It was the most solemn of all the feasts. It was considered the hour of judgment. It was also the day that they literally cleansed the sanctuary. All year long, animals were sacrificed for sin. And the blood was taken into the sanctuary. And it was, of course, symbolizing that Jesus was taking our sins on Himself. But that also meant that symbolically, that sin was being transferred into the sanctuary into the presence of God. And, and, and the sin was there in the presence of God. But can sin remain in the presence of God? No. So once a year, they had a special ceremony on the Day of Judgment, the Day of Atonement, or actually, interestingly, if you look at the word, at one meant. Isn't that cool? Bringing together. When they cleanse the sanctuary from all the sins that have been transferred inside, Look at what it says here, Leviticus 23, verses 27 to 29. Also, the tenth day of the seventh month shall be the day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you. You shall afflict your souls. For any person who is not afflicted in soul on that same day shall be cut off from his people. This was your last chance to make things right with God. Because if this feast was over and you didn't make things right, you didn't repent of your sins... You were cast out of the camp of Israel. 
you were removed from God's people. Now let's go back to Daniel 8 and think about this very carefully. We had three clues to help us understand the 2300 days. First, we discovered it was a prophecy about what? The time of the end. Then we found that it was for a time appointed. And in the New Testament, Paul told us the judgment has already been appointed. Then it said that in the 2300 days, the sanctuary would be cleansed, Daniel 8, 14. And in the Old Testament, we discovered they actually cleansed the sanctuary on what day? You with me? The Day of Atonement. Are you starting to get a sense of what's going on, friends? Daniel 8 and the 2300 days are talking about what? The judgment. And then in Daniel 7, you find a description of the judgment itself. Now, we're going to look at that more in a a future night and the progression of kingdoms. But I want you to look here briefly at Daniel 7. I watched till thrones were put in place and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow and and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. Ask yourself a question. Why would God need books? Doesn't he know everything? Doesn't God know everything? Well, of course God knows everything. But is there anybody else in the judgment who maybe wouldn't know everything? Yes, there is, friends. The angels. They don't have perfect unlimited knowledge like God does. And the Bible says they are fascinated with our story of salvation. When the Bible talks about the plan of salvation, it says things which angels desire to look into, 1 Peter 1.12. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 9, for we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. The angels want to know. God knows everything, but they don't. Fallen angels were kicked out of heaven. And now God is planning to bring you and me into His kingdom. Don't you think the angels might have a few questions about this plan? Of course they do, because angels are also thinking and feeling beings. So God calls the judgment. He opens the book and He says, Here, look, I'm not afraid of anything. Have a look. Examine the evidence. I'm convinced you're going to see that I'm doing the right thing. Now, friend, do you know what this means for you? Your name will come up in the judgment one day. My name will come up in the judgment one day. They're going to consider you. How do I know? Listen to what Paul says. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. For we all must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. For we all shall all stand before that judgment seat of Christ. How many, friends? All of us. Ecclesiastes 12.14 For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. And that's that's the bad news. Your name is going to come up in the judgment, and that's not good. You know that's not good because we know what we've done, right? You know what you've done. I know what I've done. But there is good news. There is good news you don't have to be afraid of the judgment. John 5.22 says this, For the Father judges no one, but has committed what? All judgment to the Son. Now think about this. The judge is the one who gave his life to save you. Wait a minute. You said, wait, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. The judge is the one who died for me already? But wait, that's not all there is, friends. There's even more good news. Check this out. Not only is the judge, Jesus, the one who died for you, guess who your defense attorney is? It's also Jesus. Look at what 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1 says. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. Advocate, meaning a lawyer. Jesus Christ, the righteous. Amen. Think about this, friends. The judge is the same person as your defense attorney. If you've got Jesus, there is no way that you can lose. What do you say? You may say, but Kyle, I know that sounds good, but I'm I'm scared. 
I know I'm not going to make it. I know I can't face the judgment. I know what I've done. And I know God can't accept me. Friend, by yourself, you're right. You don't stand a chance by yourself. I don't stand a chance by yourself, by myself. But the good news tonight is that you don't stand in the judgment alone. When you give your heart to Jesus, he covers your sin. And the Father doesn't see you. He sees Jesus in your place. I've described it to people like this before. It's like if this is you, if this is, this is you and all your sins and all the things you've done, when God looks at you in the judgment, He sees Jesus. You put your life in His hand. You give your life to Him. You confess your sins. Represented by this Bible, God doesn't see all those sins anymore. He sees Jesus in your place. You see, that's what we can have if we give our lives to Him. So, those 2,300 days, talking about the cleansing of the sanctuary, is God trying to tell us something about the judgment? Absolutely. The warning goes out. The judgment begins, and then Jesus comes. And sometime just before He comes, the judgment begins, and the world will know that it has started. There is a final message, a final warning that goes to the whole earth. Look at this important text from Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 and 7. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come. The world will discover at some moment, just before Jesus comes, that the judgment is already underway. The hour of His judgment not will come, it has come. The books are open, the angels are gathered, and the judgment begins. At some point, friends, the world will know that it has started. When? I'll show you tomorrow night. Because we're out of time for tonight. How's that? <laughs> so you've got to come tomorrow or tune in tomorrow to find out when. That's part two. But friends, I want to end tonight by asking you this question. Why would you not want to face God's throne with Jesus? When you see what He's done for you, when you think about what He did as the Passover lamb who gave His life to make sure that you would make it, what could possibly keep you tonight from choosing Jesus? He loves you more than you could ever know. The Father loves you. You know, there's a story that um, I'll just share as we close that uh, reminds me of the Father's love. It's an illustration. There was a man who ran a bridge. It was a train bridge. And he would flip the switch so that the bridge would turn so the trains would go over the river. And one day he went to the bridge and he saw that a train was coming and so he had to flip the switch so that the, so that the, the bridge would turn so that the train would safely pass over the river. But just as he was about to flip the switch, he noticed that his son was playing on the tracks. And, there, and as he saw the train coming on the other side of the river, he, he didn't have time. He couldn't. He was yelling, son, son, get off the tracks. He wanted to run and grab his son, but there was no way that he could grab his son safely and be able to still have time to switch the tracks. He knew that if he didn't switch it, that entire train would go plunging into the river and hundreds of people would die. So he had a very difficult choice. A terrible, excruciating choice. A choice that no parent would ever want to have to make. Would he sacrifice his son to save the people on that train? Or would he save his son? With agony, with heartache, he knew there was only one thing he could do in the moment of decision. He had to flip the switch. He couldn't let hundreds of people perish on that train. And so he couldn't watch as he flipped the switch and the bridge went in the right place and the train passed over and he lost his son, tears streaming down his face. It's just a parable, but it's a reminder of the decision that the Father made when he sent Jesus to save you and me. And how many of us are like the passengers on that train passing over that bridge and we never even knew the sacrifice that was made to save us? Friend, we don't have to be afraid of the judgment. If you know how much God loves you, you don't have to be afraid. 
because you can know that the same one who died for you is the one who is your advocate and your judge, and he's going to get you through. I invite you tonight as we close to put your trust in him. Let us pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the message tonight that has reminded us of this amazing prophecy from the book of Daniel, Lord. This prophecy of 2,300 days looking at the the span of history and reminding us that we are living in that time of judgment. And Father, we know that there is no, there's nothing that we need to fear about the judgment because you gave Jesus Christ to be our Savior. You sacrificed all for us, Lord. And not only that, but you've given him to be our judge and our lawyer. We have nothing to fear if we put our trust in him. And so tonight, Father, for each one who is watching, I pray that they would put their full trust in your, in your salvation tonight. Thank you so much, Lord, for hearing our prayers. Thank you that we don't have to be afraid of the judgment and that one day soon we're going to go home with you in that kingdom made new. We love you and we pray that you'd bring us back tomorrow night to continue studying these amazing prophecies. We pray this all in the name of Jesus, our Savior, our Judge, and our soon coming King. Amen. Amen. Friends, thank you for joining us for Amazing Prophecies. It's been a great study. We'll see you tomorrow night. God bless you. And always remember, God loves you. Good night.